It's Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up, we'll look at an AP class on African-American studies and why it's being blocked in at least one state. First, think about the place you work at or maybe a place you used to work at. Does your supervisor or someone at work seem to care about you as a person? Do you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day? Does the mission or purpose of your company make you feel that your job is important? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing? Those are some questions from a recent Gallup survey on engagement in the workplace. It found less than a third of American workers feel engaged with their job. That number has slipped since the start of the pandemic after it had gone up in previous years. We're taking a look at this idea of being engaged with our work, whether it matters to our own well-being and the job we do. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you feel engaged, connected to your job? What does that mean to you? Does it matter or is it just a job? The important stuff in life happens elsewhere. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Christine Whelan is a clinical professor in the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison and director of MORE, Money, Relationships, and Equality. She's the author of books including The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life and Finding Your Purpose, and Audible Original Great Courses program. Christine, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, defining engagement at work seems like a slippery topic. Gallup had like a dozen questions to try to get at it. What does that concept mean to you? Oh my goodness, we're hearing so much about it these days, whether it's quiet quitting or whether it's the idea that hybrid work is undermining our commitment to doing our best work at the office. I think what we're really seeing is a shift in terms of the way people think about work and how it interacts with their life. For so many decades, we had very much associated work as really the central piece of our life and that the only way to have a purposeful, meaningful life was to do some paid work that that you enjoyed. I think the pandemic shook things up and uh, and really got a big conversation going. So now what does engagement look like? Oh, man, it's going to look very different for different people. That's what I thought, because it could be uh, somebody could say, I'm engaged in my work because I believe in the mission or the product we do or whatever. Or it could be, yeah, I don't care about the work itself, but I like the people around me at the workplace. It can mean different things in different situations to different people, right? Yeah. And, you know, there was a McKinsey study last year that found that there is a real sort of purpose gap between managers and frontline employees. And so what they found was that about 85 percent of executives and upper management said that they can live their purpose in their day to day work. So that's a huge number who are really feeling purposeful and engaged at work. The opposite, though, they found for frontline managers and frontline employees, 85 percent of those folks said they were unsure or they disagreed that they could live their purpose in their day-to-day work. So we're seeing a, a real split in terms of who feels like their their work is defining them and who feels like it's just a job. You have written and thought and talked a lot about finding purpose in our lives, not just at work. How big a deal is it, Christine, if, you know, if we have a full-time job, 40 to 60 whatever hours on the week uh, uh, per week as a big part of our life, if we're not finding purpose there, is, is that bad for us? 
So purpose is really important to our well-being, but we don't necessarily have to define purpose in the um, in in the way that everything we do has to be fun and uh, and using um, all of our skills all the time. Uh, when I define purpose, I define it as using your gifts in keeping with your values to make a positive impact on the world around you, and you know providing for your family in a job that pays the bills. That's purposeful work right there. And if you can use your skills and you can engage in what academics call some job crafting to use your skills better in the workforce, what we find is that people do tend to feel more engaged. And when they feel more engaged, they work harder. They are more likely to go above and beyond. And so many employers right now are talking about purpose and how to increase the purpose of their workforce. I keep thinking of a slogan. This, I think, is from the labor movement in the 19th century, looking for eight-hour workdays. The slogan was eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what you will. I don't know. The idea is, okay, I'm going to sell you this eight hours of my labor, and I'm writing that off. The good stuff happens elsewhere. Can, Can we make that kind of clean separation anymore if we ever could? First of all, for parents and for people who work second jobs, that was never on the table. But sure. the idea of uh, the idea of of having a life outside of work is an idea that I think really was popular a couple decades ago. And then we we entered a period in uh, the seventies and the eighties and the nineties where what it meant to be a successful person was very much defined by work. That has some downsides, especially as people head toward retirement. There are many people who don't know who they are without their jobs. And so potentially having a little bit more separation and a little more of that always elusive work-life balance may be where we're headed. We're talking to Christine Whelan from the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison, looking at our engagement, our connection, our purpose during our work lives. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. In your current job, do you do you feel some of these things you're talking about? Like, uh, you know why you're there. You know what the mission is. It You feel like you're valued and providing value to uh, your workplace, your coworkers, the world at large. Or do you feel the opposite? Or have you had a job where you really didn't feel those things? Call in at 800 642 one two three four. That's eight hundred six four two one two three four. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. If I'm an employer, Christine, and I want to have an engaged workforce, what can I do? Are there things I could do to set the scene to make it more possible? Absolutely. So the first thing to do is to really approach it in a genuine way. Because if you're thinking about purpose as sort of the latest slogan, then that's not going to resonate. And in fact, it will alienate folks. But instead, ask people about their personal purpose as well. And so I offer all sorts of these sort of Mad Libs purpose statements that people can do, combining your values and your gifts and who you want to positively impact. Then you can link that to the company's mission and vision and purpose statement. But really, what we find in the business world is that purpose has to be uh, something that is imbued into all aspects of the company. So for example, if a company says that their purpose is uh, environmental sustainability, but folks don't recycle even in the office, then that's just doing lip service and not actually embodying purpose. 
I could see myself being a very skeptical employee uh, with a with an employer who is saying, "Yeah, here's our purpose. Here how here's how we're matching things. How how do we make that? I guess feel authentic, and I guess be authentic to that skeptical Rob like worker." <laughs> well, you know, for leaders, you you want to actually live purposefully yourself. So it's a practice what you preach from the top. But what we're seeing from this latest McKinsey data from just really a couple months ago is that even though executives are feeling purposeful, uh, the, the frontline employees aren't. And I think that's now in part because we have a, a different sense of where we should be physically uh, in regard to work and whether work is a place for socializing in, in, as, as a large part in addition to work or whether we're sort of doing our work remotely. One of the things that I've been really interested in is I would have predicted that remote work would have really actually decreased employee engagement, but we find it hasn't. So uh, so I think we're heading into this sort of brave new world where we're trying to figure out how to uh, manage a hybrid workforce and during this engagement blip. Yeah, I wanted to ask about uh, work from home. The, the Gallup survey seemed to suggest that people who were, uh, you know, who had been through some of that hybrid workforce experience you'd mentioned, they were maybe some of the people who were feeling less engaged than they might have. That would make sense to me. And other studies, though, have found that that's, that's not true. So if uh, it, so, I think it's going to really depend on the sector and depend on the individual. But when we think about like the, the purpose that people want from their, their work, out, their life outside of work, right? They're looking for, uh, to do healthy things, to have life satisfaction. Uh, when, you, when you think about the work and the purpose in day-to-day work itself, then that's really about... Uh, pride in what you do uh, about a, um, a, are you achieving? Are you connecting? Do you, are you excited about new possibilities? So this is something that employers can put into their workforce. They can make sure that people are rewarded for the good work that they're doing. And even if you are in a hybrid workforce, providing that connection and new opportunities and challenges. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Kathy is with us in Madison. Kathy, hi. Hi. What did you want to tell us about, Kathy? Well, I wanted to say that um, I was a, a, a public school teacher, and I taught music mostly at the elementary level. And I, I was in the classroom for 40 years, and one of the things I really loved about my job was that I never had to wonder if I was making a difference. I knew that I made a difference every day. And, uh, you know, I was not just making a profit for somebody. So um, that's my comment. And it was it was a great one of the many great things about teaching children. And Kathy, I, I know uh, being a teacher can be challenging. Uh, teaching teaching music uh, can be equally challenging. Did that that feeling that there was a purpose to it get you through maybe those tougher days? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's I think it's most challenging at the beginning beginning if you're if you are not a natural at classroom control. It takes a while, it takes a few years to really get your sea legs under you, but um it's a great job and I really like teaching music because it was fun, you know, and nobody um is going to like flunk music or, you know, flunk a grade <laughs> because they didn't pass music. So there's not the same kind of pressure on it as there is when you're teaching reading and math. Interesting. Kathy, thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, Christine, Kathy clearly found a, a job that, that matched her purpose, and, and she found it fun, too. Yeah, so teaching and uh, is, is one of those wonderful jobs. 
I am a teacher as well, that really, uh, that, that really makes you understand that you are making an impact. I'm always interested in the folks who are able to find purpose and meaning in jobs that aren't so uh, sort of emotionally connecting with with other folks. And that's where you know you realize what you are doing matters down the line. So when I'm working with a student, I can clearly see the impact that I'm having on a student. Uh, and, and but yet also when I get a letter from a student five years down the line saying uh, that that what I had taught them really impacted me, that's really something that gives me increased purpose as well. You know, the purpose Having a high sense of purpose makes you able to think that you can accomplish bigger and greater things than if you don't have a sense of purpose. There is a really interesting study that had students look at, at the, stand at the base of a mountain and they looked up at the mountain and they had to decide whether they could climb the mountain or not. And those with a higher sense of purpose believed that they were likely to be able to climb this mountain and people with a lower sense of purpose were more intimidated. And so whether it's a metaphorical mountain or a real mountain, having a sense of purpose helps us really through those tough times at work. Kathy, thanks a lot for that call. We're talking to Christine Whelan from the UW-Madison School of Human Ecology. Her books include The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life. We're looking at engagement in the workplace. A Gallup survey says under a third of Americans feel engaged with their work. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Tell us about a job, past or present, that you felt really engaged with or disengaged from. What did that look like? What did it feel like? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation. Maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up the conversation with Christine Whelan from the UW-Madison School of Human Ecology, looking at our feelings of engagement and connection with our work after a Gallup poll showed that under a third of American workers say they feel engaged at work. You can join in with your story, your thoughts, your questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Rhiannon joins us now in Watertown. Rhiannon, hi. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, What's your work story? So a handful of years ago, I was hired by Trek Bicycles, and I have been in the bicycle industry for over 25 years. I've never felt a true connection or overly engaged, just kind of of been part of the industry. However, Trek has done a fantastic job of integrating. um, One of the things that your speaker mentioned was the hybrid workforce um, with COVID, we had to go a lot of remote. And another interesting point that your speaker brought up was having that emotional connection to a job that you don't see the immediate value stream. And my job is an engineer and we don't generally see the immediate impact of our value stream. So it was really interesting when I got the job to be able to get that immediate engagement, immediate connection and Overall, it's the best tribal experience that I've had in a career, and it's just been absolutely amazing to be a part of that company, and you get that value stream when you get out on your bicycle, ride around, you talk to the people, and you just have that great connection with not only the consumer, but also your coworkers. We have so many great benefits and programs at the company. It's incredible. Rena, thank you so much for sharing that story from a Wisconsin-based uh, company. Christine, what do you think? Oh, 
Oh, this is so wonderful to hear. You know, humans are social animals, right? So uh, we do derive meaning from uh, from interactions with other people and from actually physically doing things like riding that bicycle that you may have engineered. So that's super cool. The other findings that we're seeing is that you know when employees are more satisfied at work, uh, they're they're more satisfied when they feel like their jobs are meaningful. And so, for example, as an engineer, thinking about the end product is really important, even if you are not going to immediately see it. Uh, understanding that your work is incredibly purposeful and meaningful, and that people are relying on you—that's a big part of it. Rianan, thank you so much for sharing your story at 800-642-1234. Back to your calls. Jim is with us in Watertown. Jim, hello. Hello. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Yeah, this hits home because uh, during COVID, I you know decided I would sit it out. I'm a construction worker, pretty much always have been. Um, and I came to find out that I got completely miserable. Um I, I do like being a construction worker very much. I like the fact that at the end of the project, I get to look back on what it is I've done and, you know, get that little jolt of pride for it and know that the next one's coming down the block. I'm also 59 years old and was really looking at possibly retiring. And I know that there is no way if it comes down to I can't do it for somebody else, I'll be doing it for myself. Uh, you know, I'm grandpa. That's my other, uh, you know, identity, but it's, you know, well, you feel good about me at the end of the day, I got to be busy. And Jim, I got to ask you, if I asked you 10 years ago, uh, who you are, what you do, would you say, yeah, I'm a construction worker. If I asked you right nope. now, would you say I'm a construction worker? 10 years ago, I was floating. I didn't understand that giving a piece of myself to something gave me value back tenfold. From that point, though, I have looked at myself as a construction worker. Interesting. Jim, thanks so much for sharing that story. Christina, we've heard from uh, people in different lines of work. What do you think of Jim's story? Oh, first, I just love this so much because purpose at, at its core, I believe, is pro-social, meaning that you are using your gifts for the benefit of others. And that's really what the story is all about. So that's that's so wonderful. It also reminds me of my, my favorite parable that I always tell when I'm trying to define purpose for people. And it's the parable of the traveler that comes across three men laying bricks. And he asks the first man, what are you doing? And the first man says, I'm putting one brick on top of the other. And the second man says he's building a wall. And the third man says he's building a cathedral. And the, the moral of this parable is that, you know, it, it's not about just putting one brick on top of the other, but that, that's having a job. Building the wall is having a career. But if you have that, that larger sense of what you're doing, that sense of purpose, you can see the really meaningful things that you are making. And so hearing Jim talk about that, I thought that is, that, that's such a beautiful way to put it. Thanks again for calling in, Jim, Jim, and sharing your story. Christine, suppose somebody's listening and saying, you know, I don't feel engaged at my workplace. Uh, and, you know, people don't always have the option, obviously, to leave jobs or change jobs at the spur of the moment. What kind of thoughts do you have for someone in that situation? So there's research around job crafting, where you actually begin to think about what it is that you could do at your job that would be more meaningful. How are you able to use your skills differently in your 
current role or potentially to craft a role that better uses your skills and abilities. So that's one option. The other option is to realize that you are doing purposeful work by supporting your family. And if at this moment you can't financially leave that job, to know that it's not like you're wasting eight hours at the job that you're that you're at that you don't particularly enjoy you're supporting others and then really find that meaning and purpose in some of the unpaid work and the unpaid things you do you know we've really been focused on paid work but so much of our economy is also run by unpaid work and and the care work that we do and so that can be very purposeful or that can be seen as a burden on top of our paid work so thinking about work really broadly speaking not just the stuff that accrues money in a bank account, but work can be purposeful of all types. And in just our last minute, let's flip things around. Now I'm that person's boss. Uh, What's in it for me if I get in touch with them and find out, you know, how they can better use their skills, how they could get more engaged? When you have an engaged worker, you are much less likely to lose them. And retention is incredibly important to employers because finding a new employee is challenging and costly. And raises and promotions are much more common for employees who have meaningful work because their bosses see their engagement and want to keep them. So it is a win-win all around to have a meaningful, purposeful workplace. Christine, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. That's Christine Whelan from the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison. She's the author of books including The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life, and Finding Your Purpose and Audible Original Great Courses Program. She joined us for a look at our feelings of engagement at work or lack of same. You can keep sharing your stories, your experiences over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Coming up after the news, Florida's governor won't allow a pilot AP course on African-American studies to be taught in public schools in that state. And that wants to ban critical race theory and diversity, equity, inclusion programs at state colleges. We'll look at the role of issues of race in education. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, do you think you know what you're made of? We learn about the history of the stuff that we are built from. Atoms, where they all come from, and how we use them. Now, earlier this week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced plans to block diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, as well as critical race theory at Florida State Colleges. We are also going to eliminate all DEI and CRT bureaucracies in the state of Florida. No funding, and that will wither on the vine. And I think that that's very important because it really serves as an ideological filter, a political filter. That follows Governor DeSantis' announcement that the state will prohibit public schools from participating in a pilot program for a new advanced placement course on African-American studies. Yesterday, the College Board, which created that AP course, released its official curriculum. It no longer includes some of the material that the Florida government had opposed. 
you can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you looked into this AP class on African-American studies? Uh, What do you think about the material there? What questions do you have about what is and isn't there? Do you want to see schools participate in it? How about diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at schools and colleges? Uh, Have you encountered one? What do you think? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Robert Smith is the Harry G. John Professor of History and Director of the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach at Marquette University. Rob, welcome back to Central Time. Glad to be back. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Now, last time we talked, we looked at this uh, African-American Studies AP program that it rolled out. Can you remind us, uh, big picture, what kind of things are included there? Well, you know, it's it's classic college-level material. It takes students through uh, early African history. West Africa has a significant focus in that process. Moves students into the era of enslavement and resistance. And then brings students into conversations about Black freedom struggles, struggles for racial equality, the movements that were central to those conversations. It gets us into uh, the experiences of artists and activists in all kinds of ways. So it's it's classic college-level material. And how this is an advanced placement class is something that everybody's going to take. What kind of level of engagement with these ideas would we expect in an AP class? It's the idea is right. It's it's like you're in a college class. Absolutely, and I think first and foremost, it's document based. So it's encouraging students to not only develop skills, but to develop their critical thinking and to think about ways to inject other narratives, other ideas, important concepts into that historical discourse that oftentimes is is left out. So now we have the decision uh, from the Florida government and Governor DeSantis uh, saying, nope, not in our schools here. I want to give a listen to some of what he had to say in announcing that. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. Now, the College Board has announced some changes uh, that they say have been in the works for a while based on their early pilots. Some of the stuff that uh, the Florida governor is pointing to as controversial have to do with modern day uh, issues and theory. What do you think about the objections there? Well, you know, it's interesting that the argument to exclude uh, these components uh, are based on notions of political agendas when this is clearly a political agenda of extreme proportions. And so that in so many ways, this is reflective of why it's important for uh, students, particularly college-level students, college-level thinkers, to engage ideas such as this so that we can see how history echoes and so that uh, young people can understand that when we think about issues associated with inequality, there are historical trajectories that get replayed over and over. Are you surprised that there have been object, uh, objections to the AP course? Uh, it seems like any mention of race and education, uh, somebody's going to bring this up as an issue. You know, I'm, I'm not surprised about it at all. However, what what is surprising is that the, the, the arguments and the ideas actually inform why it's important for us to investigate these very issues. Uh, you know, the 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 question around intersectionality, abolishing prisons, 
uh, these are very important conversations because they're very relevant today. It, it speaks to issues of identity, that, that we are more complicated individuals and therefore history needs to be more complicated in order to inject more of those narratives and more of those, those voices into the historical discourse. Uh, you know, if we talk, you, you mentioned abolishing prisons, we know that this has become a human rights issue of significant proportions. And so the, the, the idea that studying these kinds of ideas and studying these concepts is somehow connected to a political agenda is in many ways not only wrong and false, it's absurd, uh, because we, we, we have to have young people engaged in the questions of the day so that the past makes more sense. The concern, I think, uh, from the Florida governor and others is that, okay, oh, abolishing prisons, this is some, this is going to end up being indoctrination in a way. How would you how would you handle that concept or ha- suggest educators handle dealing with those concepts in a way that doesn't, you know, I guess, try to indoctrinate or make the case for something, but have people engage with the ideas, even if they ultimately agree or disagree with them? Well, if we if we started the notion that it's indoctrination, uh, that that sets a very uh, false set of ideas that then teachers have to respond to. Uh, indoctrination is uh, an inaccurate way of thinking about what educators do in the classroom. Educators are providing the environment for young brains to develop and think critically. And so we 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 are called upon in the classroom to raise topics that are difficult, raise topics that are complicated. But most importantly, give students the skills and the resources to think through these questions effectively. Talking to Rob Smith from Marquette University, professor of history there and director of the Center for Urban Research, Teaching and Outreach, looking at race and education in schools and colleges and the politics surrounding those issues after an AP uh, class and test on African-American studies uh, blocked, at least for now, in Florida public schools. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have these related issues come up in your community, your local school district, whether you're a community member, student, teacher, parent, or staff, love to hear from you, your perspective, Did the politics get heated? Were you able to talk about these things in a civil way? Call it at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org with your thoughts or your questions. Now, turning to another uh, part of our conversation here, Rob, Critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, Governor DeSantis, again, this is in Florida, says he's banning those from uh, public colleges, cutting the bureaucracy related to those. Let's untangle those, first of all. Uh, Diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, they can mean different things in different places. What do they usually look like in higher education, though? Well, in higher education, there are any number of uh, onboarding HR-related sessions where you, you you learn appropriate workplace behavior, you understand and learn uh, the values that an institution carries and what your responsibilities are as, a, as an employee in that institution. Many institutions have expressed commitments to DEI-related uh, values and practices, and so employees have to learn what is expected of them in the workplace and how to create a more inclusive workplace. This is uh, hardly a political agenda. It's about making your workplace healthier for everyone who's a part of it. 
So what do you think of, uh, I guess, this backlash against DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at schools? Well, the, the, the backlash is the political agenda, to be perfectly honest. The backlash uh, is indeed attacking uh, a set of mechanisms that are intended to make workplaces, uh, workplace environments, we could even extend it more broadly to, you know, society, to make our society healthier, make our society more welcoming, uh, make sure that folks find themselves and see themselves as valued members of institutions and communities. Uh, you know, if, if we're not approaching with uh, serious rigor and commitment these fundamental notions of inclusion, then we, we are uh, allowing for these institutions and these workplaces to be to remain hostile and to be, uh, you know, hostile to folks who oftentimes are uh, marginalized in all kinds of ways that we don't always know, and we don't always understand. And so we have to continue to learn and educate those who, who we work with, learn and educate for ourselves, so that we can be better about, you know, the jobs that we do, and then also to to live and breathe those values appropriately and honestly. Rob Smith is with us, professor of history and director of the Center for Urban Research, teaching and outreach at Marquette University. We're looking at issues of race and education, including an advanced placement class at African-American studies currently blocked in at least one state. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you support uh, the Florida governor blocking this uh, African-American studies AP class, at least in Florida public schools? Do you want to know more about this program? Did you take a class at some point in your life that uh, you thought really did uh, inform you a lot about uh, issues of race and its history here in the United States? Call it at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. We're picking up our talk now with Rob Smith, history professor, director of the Center for Urban Research, Teaching and Outreach at Marquette University, looking at recent decisions by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to ban a new pilot AP course on African-American studies in public high schools there and to block diversity, equity and inclusion programs at state colleges. You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 with your thoughts on this. If you've seen similar debates, maybe in your own community, your own school district, what's going on there. If you teach, do you feel like your shoulders being looked over a little bit on these issues? Call 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Celia is with us in Madison. Celia, hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good. What did you want to tell um, us about? I, well, first of all, I took a an African-American studies course uh, at the students' urgings, and uh, I think it was probably 1968 at the UW here in Madison, and it was very good. Um, but I'm a Civil War historian, and this is about power. Uh, it's about uh, economic power of white aristocrats who were mainly brought to Virginia by lo- the royal governor during the English Civil Wars. And they always owned the most slaves. At the same time, New England, and uh, mostly New England, uh, had a ca- uh, law case uh, in, uh, in which John Hancock and the boys sued a Phyllis Wheatley, a slave, for coming out with a book of poetry, which they said was a fraud. But, the, but she won the case. She opened the door for emancipation before the revolution in all of New England. 10 to 15% of the revolutionary army 
were blacks. By 1846, there were anti-slavery societies in Illinois, thanks to the railroad and white financing of anti-slavery movements by the Tappan brothers all over the United States. So yeah, thanks for calling in. Rob Celia uh, tried to hit some, I think, uh, often unremembered uh, pieces of history there. Yeah, you know, that was a very useful example because it emphasizes the value of the AP course. So what we just heard included commentary about this nation's legal history, the nation's stain of slavery, the importance of the voice of a Black woman who's one of the most brilliant poets in American history. It also engages the question of some of our noted so-called founding fathers. All of this is wrapped into a conversation about an Afro-American studies course. So anyone who thinks that this type of study is not fully inclusive or is running the political agenda need only take listen to this last commentary. Look at what we're able to unbraid just from this one anecdote. And that is exactly why this course is valuable because it allows us to peer into history, take what we've learned, add more of what we're learning about history because the more we learn about history, the more history changes and then also make some assessments and connections to today. That's a perfect example of why our young people need to hear these kinds of stories, read these kinds of documents, explore this kind of history and this kind of literature in an interdisciplinary fashion, and come to some understanding of this nation's history. Thank you very much for that anecdote. Thanks for calling in. Heidi joins us next in uh, Martin. Heidi, hi. Hi there. How are you? Good. What did you want to bring up? Well, I want to bring up that I think the governor needs to take these courses and maybe many of our politicians should be required to take these courses before they take office so that they aren't leading our nation with ignorance. I'm a Milwaukee public school teacher, and to hear comments like that is just, it's ignorant. And we it, that, that's the problem in our country. We don't have acceptance, and we have so much ignorance. And when you lead with ignorance, you get what we're getting. Heidi, uh, thanks for the call, Rob. I actually, can I share an anecdote sure. before we get too far? You know, uh, I had the opportunity, and, and I want to send props to all the, the the school teachers. Thank you so very much for the work you do with our children, and you, you're so valued and so important. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to work with a fourth grade class, and my my goal that day, I I, I said I was going to come in and. You, the fourth graders could ask me any question about history. This fourth grader, I won't say her full name. Her last name was Robinson, Miss Robinson. She said, Dr. Rob, this was the, this was the first question I received. She said, Dr. Rob. I said, yes, Miss Robinson. She said, I have two comments and a question. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> she said, my first question is the, the flag stands for freedom, justice, and liberty, right? Emphasis on the right. I said, of course, Ms. Robinson. She said, Dr. Rob, uh, now we had slavery at the same time we had the flag, right? I said, okay. And she said, my question is, how could we possibly have the flag at the same time that we have slavery? This from a fourth grader. And I share that anecdote because it's teachers who are called upon 
to answer those questions for those young minds, or at least to give them the tools to ask the right questions so that they can get to the right answers. And that fourth grader, those comments and those questions sit at the nexus of this nation's challenges and problems with racism. And that fourth grader understood that. And that fourth grader deserved to have a classroom <clears throat> where she could explore the questions that were gnawing at her. We owe that to our children and we owe it to our teachers to give them to ro the room to do their jobs. That's my anecdote. That's my story. Thanks for that call. Will joins us now in Oconomowoc. Will, hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good. What did you want to bring up, Will? Um, I just want to point out that I, I think Dr. Smith is being dishonest when he's claiming that um, only the right-wing attacks on education recently are politically motivated because the DEI initiatives and things like the 1619 Project have only really cropped up since the massive George Floyd protests in 2020 and, you know, like over the larger movement in the tens. And they are a political movement. All of that inclusion in our education system is political. And so to claim that what the right is doing is the only political thing that is happening, I think it's manufacturing consent and just being dishonest and fooling people. Well, thanks for the call. A political agenda, uh, whether you like the politics of it or not, Rob, in diverse, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Uh, you, you know, the, the notion that creating a, a more equi equitable workplace is a polit political agenda is, is false. I'm not being disingenuous or uh, advancing the political agenda for wanting to make sure that the folks I work with are working in a place that is health healthy and welcoming to who they are as individuals, no matter what their identities are. That is about making sure we live up to the creed of our nation and the creed and vision and mission of so many of our institutions. The institutions that are approaching these DEI initiatives are doing this on their own accord. In some cases, there might be requirements here or there, but these are institutions that are working toward a particular outcome that they think is best for the institution so that their employees can work in a healthy environment. That's for everyone involved. That does not exclude anyone. We're simply a part of a moment where more and more people are demanding that we have a more inclusive set of institutions. To resist that through the policymaking process is where the political agenda comes in, in my estimations. Well, thanks for the call. Rob, I want to bring things back around now to the AP class. Are these things evolve over time based on early piloting? There have been some changes. What kind of things are you watching for next as uh, it continues to be rolled out and tested and uh, expanded into more schools? Well, again, th this is continually being revised. The uh, course is being constructed by educators of multiple levels, of multiple experiences. Uh, so we do have to wait to see what the final course will look like. Obviously, there are going to be revisions for all kinds of reasons, but the the pressure to alter this curriculum in any kind of way from policymakers denies teachers the full breadth of their experiences to make sure that the course functions the way it's supposed to for the students who they know better than anyone else, the, the students who they know fully what they're capable of, politicians don't know that. Only teachers and educators know that. That's just the truth.
in just our last minute or so. Uh, are you concerned that uh, more states might move uh, to block this AP class? Uh, you know, we have to always be concerned when we get into uh, this question of, of restricting ideas and silencing ideas. That is dangerous. It's hostile. And unfortunately, we have a, a, a history of that happening not only here in this country, but in other countries. So we do have to be concerned about that. Uh, the, the the extent to which states of, of any significant number approach this, we'll, we'll have to see. We, we have to be concerned about it because we know that that is indeed a possibility. Rob, we'll leave it there. Equal- oh, we're all out of time. Thanks again for joining okay. us today, Rob. Thank you. That's Robert Smith, professor of history and director of the Center for Urban Research, teaching and outreach at Marquette University. He joined us today to look at Florida's ban on a pilot advanced placement African-American studies course and the Florida governor's plan to block diversity, equity and inclusion programs at Florida state colleges. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer Kent, organic farming is a big deal here in Wisconsin and some new USDA organic labeling guidelines could have a big impact. Find out why, what kind of changes are in the works, and if you are someone who uh, consumes organic products or produces them, definitely want to hear from you. You can get started right now with an email at ideas at WPR.org. Then join the conversation tomorrow, tomorrow morning at 730 here on the Ideas Network.